Welcome to the FPS Podcast Series. This is podcast number 33, Avoiding Fraud in Federal Contract Claims. My name is Todd Hatherley. I'm the Director of Programming for Federal Publication Seminars, and we're a leader in federal government contract training and professional development for the past 60 years. And every year, we train thousands of businesses, federal agencies, and individuals on the legal, regulatory, compliance, and accounting nuances found in the federal regulations through nationwide classrooms, online, and in-house sessions. And these podcasts are really just a small sampling of important content you as a contracting professional can expect from attending an FPS program, whether in person or online, live or on demand. You cannot find another source with the breadth and depth of experience, knowledge, and content anywhere. So please visit us at fedpubseminars.com for more information. Today, I'm joined by Teddy Arnold and Stephanie Magnell, from the law firm Seiferth Shaw in their DC office. How are both of you doing today? Great, Todd, thanks, good to be here. Great, thanks so much, Todd. All right, so we're gonna talk a little bit about uh, avoiding fraud and federal contract claims, like I mentioned, and I have a few questions for you, and let me bring them up as I already closed out of it. So can you give the audience an overview of the claim submission process? Absolutely. Thanks, Todd. Yeah. So, so as you said today, we are going to talk about fraud in the contract disputes process, but it's important first to understand how the disputes process works, and then we can just discuss where fraud intersects or just otherwise disrupts that process. So I'm going to give a quick overview of the process. There's a lot of nuance to the claim submission process, each of which could merit its own podcast episode or even full day seminar, which we won't get into. So the FAR, the Federal Acquisition Regulation, contains a disputes clause, 52.233-1. It's in most procurement contracts. This is the contractual mechanism for resolving disputes. And disputes are, in fact, a part of life in government contracting. And if the parties are unable to resolve their issues, the contractor must then turn to procedures established by a statute known as the Contract Disputes Act 1978, the CDA. CDA applies to all Contracts entered into with the federal government for procurement of property or services, procurement of construction, maintenance of real property, disposal of personal property. The scope of the CDA includes all matters, quote, related to the contract. This typically includes claims for either breach of contract or claims arising under one of the particular contract clauses, such as the changes clause that you hear about a lot. Under the CDA, the key representative for the government is the contracting officer, and he has the power to decide uh, the fate of the contractor's claims. And as such, the, the CDA involves a claim that must be submitted to the contracting officer and subject to a final decision. Many claims do start off as what's known as a request for equitable adjustment, which is more of a routine request that can then morph into a more formal claim that has to have certain facets um, as defined by the FAR. Those include, it must be in writing, it must state, set forth the relief sought, um, which typically is money, known as a sum certain, although it can also ask for an interpretation of contract terms, has to request a final decision. Um, if it's, It must be certified if the amount sought is greater than $100,000. Um, and then the contracting officer has 60 days to issue a final decision if it's less than $100,000. If it's more than that amount, they have to issue the decision in 60 days or notify the contractor when it expects uh, the decision to be made. If the contracting officer fails to do either of those things, it's what's known as a deemed denial. And then the contractor then could elevate that claim uh, into the appellate level. Um, if the final decision is denied in writing, it'll instruct the contractor how to appeal. 
Now, there are two avenues for appeal um, known as the election doctrine. Uh, so a contractor gets a choice. They can either appeal to the agency boards of contract appeals, most notably the Civilian Board of Contract Appeals and the Armed Services Board of Contract Appeals. They have to do that in 90 days. Or they have one year to appeal to the Court of Federal Claims, which is an Article I court that operates uh, very similar to a federal district court. So that is sort of a soup to nuts, very high level overview of the claim submission process. Thank you. Uh, so how does fraud intersect the claim submission process? So Todd, um, the fraud comes into the claim submission process through the Contract Disputes Act. And that's because contracting officers under the Contract Disputes Act are forbidden from settling claims that involve uh, misrepresentation of fact or fraud. Now, the problem is that fraud isn't specifically defined. And so at that point in time, fraud is what the contracting officer believes it is. So the contracting officer at that point, we've seen that contracting officers you know, take a few different uh, approaches. Some have denied the claim on the basis of fraud. Some have denied a part of the claim that they think is fraudulent. And some contracting officers um, have decided to not issue a decision, but a contractor can still go to, for example, the ASBCA or another uh, Board of Contract Appeals and appeal what is effectively a, a deemed denial of the original claim. I'll just add in something there too, Todd. So, you know, when you think of the contract disputes process where, where contractors are submitting claims for typically for money to the government, you're not typically thinking about fraud at the outset. Where you, where you tend to think about is with, with respect to numerous federal statutes the government would otherwise use to prosecute fraud in federal district court, most famously the Civil False Claims Act. But, you know, as we've seen over the years, fraud has found its way into the contract dispute system, most commonly in the form of a government counterclaim uh, in the court of federal claims, where the government is entitled to, to prosecute a counterclaim under a statute such as the False Claims Act, the Anti-Kickback Act, or, or the Forfeiture of Claims Statute, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Now, the Boards of Contract Appeals, it's a whole nother can of worms where fraud was typically not in, envisioned by the CDA to be litigated there, but the boards have found that fraud can may be maintained under certain circumstances, depending on sort of how the fraud has been alleged and when it's been alleged. And with that respect too, as Stephanie mentioned, the CDA does have certain provisions in it known as the anti-fraud provisions. And there's really four of them. And the most common one, as Stephanie mentioned, is, you know, this one that the, the contracting officer is not authorized to settle, compromise, pay, or adjust any claims involving fraud. That sort of tension there as to how the contracting officer handles the claim, it really becomes point center um, in a lot of these decisions we see out of the boards. Walk me through how a contracting officer will look at a claim and decide whether it involves fraud. Todd, for that, and I'm going to speak from my experience um, as a former uh, Army government contract litigator, I've seen what a contracting officers do this in, in a number of instances. One, when there, there didn't actually seem to be a contract between the claimant and the government, um, that the person had actually appeared to have created their own contract that was not actually entered into by the government. So the question is whether there's a contract. Then if you look at the claim, uh, there, whether uh, there's supporting evidence for the claim, i.e. whether the event happened at all. And then you get 
more to the uh, question of the quantum, the amount of the claim. For example, um, if the events that the claimant appear to have happened, but there doesn't seem to be uh, appropriate evidence supporting the amount. So I've seen contracting officers believe that there is fraud in all of those instances. What remedies uh, does the government have to address potential fraud claims? And uh, what some of the penalties can a contractor be susceptible to? So it, it really depends on, you know, we come back to the election doctrine and what, what forum the contractor has elected to prosecute their appeal. But before you get to the forum, the most common remedy that the government has, as Stephanie stated, was that they have the option to deny your claim. That is under the CDA. Now, what may happen and what has happened in many cases is that where the contracting officer suspects the claim is fraudulent, in other words, they get the claim, they look at it, and they think there's something wrong with it, uh, either it's uh, the, the amounts are not correct or the contractor's invoicing for goods or services not provided, the contractor contract officer may actually simply just not respond to the claim based on suspected fraud. That, of course, would give rise to a deemed denial that the contractor could appeal. And as we'll talk about, there's sort of a series of intricate decisions as to whether the boards will maintain jurisdiction over deemed denials where the contract contracting officer basically just didn't respond because they thought the claim was fraudulent. So that's, that's one remedy, claim denials. Another remedy is what's known as an affirmative defense. So for a contractor who appeals their denied claim, whether it's been denied in writing or a deemed denial, they appeal that to the Board of Contract Appeals. The government may then raise as an affirmative defense that they expect the claim is fraudulent or that there's evidence that the claim is fraudulent. In other words, the government's giving a reason why the, the contractor should not prevail. That is another one. And then if you're in the Court of Federal Claims, um, that's where the contractor becomes exposed to government counterclaims that are otherwise not available at the Boards of Contract Appeals. And as I mentioned, the most common government counterclaims arising out of fraud are the False Claims Act, the CDA anti-fraud provisions that we mentioned, and what's known as the forfeiture of claims statute, which would essentially render the entire claim unrecoverable if, and in fact, the contractor, if any part of the, the claim is fraudulent. This highlights the difference in how fraud is handled at the boards of contract appeals versus the court of federal claims. And so in that regard, the contractor's choice of forum does in fact matter. But I, you know, I will say just an important note is regardless of, of where you choose to prosecute your claim, any false or fraudulent statement made to the government whether in the contract claim or else elsewhere, is always subject to prosecution by the government. So you could always have a parallel proceeding where the government essentially, you know, deems that you've made some false statement or some fraudulent claim, and they can just elect to proceed in federal district court in under, say, the False Claims Act or some other some other statute in that regard. So as a contractor, if I submit a fraudulent claim, could there be civil penalties or a, a criminal prosecution be involved in that? The answer is there could be there could be both, and it and it really depends on the nature of the fraud the government is alleging. Um, the False Claims Act is unique in that it has both a civil and a criminal component, and it, it whichever one the government chooses to prosecute, it really depends on how strong of a case they think they have. Of course, under the criminal statute, the burden of proof is significantly higher; it's beyond a reasonable doubt, which is probably why most of the action is with the Civil False Claims Act, it's a much easier standard to prove. It's preponderance of the evidence. 
And as a contractor submitting a claim, you of course could be subject to either a government counterclaim in the Court of Federal Claims under one under the False Claims Act, for example, or the government could open up a separate prosecution in U.S. District Court, in federal district court, uh, you know, sort of a run-of-the-mill False Claims Act that arises out of your your fraudulent or allegedly fraudulent claim submission. Does the Board of Contract Appeals have jurisdiction to decide appeals involving fraud? Well, I think that's where we get into some really interesting cases. Uh, They don't, but they have a number of cases where they've taken jurisdiction, where there have been allegations of fraud, and the board has sort of carved itself out an exception in order to maintain jurisdiction. What are some of the best practices to avoid being accused of fraud in the submission of a claim? In order to prepare claims efficiently with minimal risk of liability, you're well advised to form a claims team that includes at least one member of of a certain number of categories of personnel. I think you want somebody from your contracts department who's familiar with the contract terms uh, and who has experience in claim preparation. You want a member of the program office who is familiar with the basic contract documents, requirements, and the technical aspects of the contract somebody with technical expertise. This is somebody from your engineering department who can sort of communicate complex technical issues in a way that a layperson can understand. Um, maybe somebody from your editing department who understands sort of the how the proposal was put together, how those costs are tracked um, and accounted for. Uh, and then, of course, legal counsel, who, who you're going to want to run any claim submission by due diligence on the claim uh, before it is it is in fact submitted. So that's so establishing a claims team is, is really one one way to do it. Yeah, Stephanie, do you have anything to add to that? I would say it's really important that you maintain good records. Uh, I'm I would actually at this point add a somewhat cautionary tale. You know, if you're bringing a claim on one aspect, I. Uh, you need to know that with litigation, you're going to be required to open up um, your records. And uh, when I was at the Army, there was a contractor who brought a claim at the ASBCA. But in the course of reviewing the records of the non-fraudulent claim, I found what I'm going to call, in my opinion, uh, very questionable billing practices on another aspect of the contract. And we were in year three of a, it was a five-year contract, you know, base year and four option years. And that case ended up settling. The way that settled was that the contractor performed the next two years at no further cost to the government. So I would advise contractors to be really good uh, in their record keeping and just to make sure that they're clean across the board if they plan to bring a claim, because a contractor that uh, appeals should be sure that its billing records can really withstand that type of uh, general scrutiny, because you can be sure that the government, if they see something uh, in your claim, they will uh, raise it and use that at least in settlement, if if not elsewhere. Getting ready for this program, we were talking you mentioned something about green dreams as a noteworthy decision uh, addressing fraud. So, Stephanie, can you tell tell us a little bit about that? I think the joke is that green dream was kind of a nightmare. Um, <laughs> <laughs> of course, it just it begs for that uh, type of comparison um, with that name. But that's my hope is that that case is really 
um, an exceptional decision at the board. Um, there was an aspect where of that claim with uh, where there was a sheikh who had allegedly provided security in Iraq. Um, the government maintained that the entire claim uh, was fraudulent. The board still kept jurisdiction, but found that there was no evidentiary support for that aspect of the claim and decided it, you know, and one could really raise the question of whether the board in that case had resolved a claim involving fraud because there was no evidence. This wasn't about the amount of the claim, but whether or not the events had actually taken place. I, you know, misrepresentation of fact on the part of the uh, appellant. Um, and then, but the board maintained jurisdiction and then the board ended up uh, awarding the contractor um, the majority of its claim, even though the government maintained that the entire claim was when it's in fact wholly fabricated. So, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that when um, people look at, at Green Dream, they, they see it as an exception. I hope that the board see that particular case as, as an exception, especially in terms of uh, whether or not it would maintain jurisdiction. Interesting. Uh, Teddy, you mentioned uh, also there's a Northworthy decision that you had. Yeah, so so I don't think any dis you can't have a discussion about fraudulent claims without talking about what's known as I think it's Daewoo, it's D A E W O O. Uh, Daewoo is a it's a case from uh, 2009, and in this case, the contractor uh, who's a construction company had submitted a claim totaling almost 64 million for added costs in constructing a road on the remote island in the Republic of Palau in the South Pacific, and the contractor claimed that over $13 million of its added costs had already been incurred, and that it had a remaining $50 million claim that would be incurred in completing the project, so a, a forward-looking $50 million claim. This case got tried at the Court of Federal Claims, and the Department of Justice filed a counterclaim uh, pursuant to the False Claims Act, forfeiture claims, and the CDA anti-fraud provisions. Um, essentially, that, that the contractor's claim was bogus, was fraudulent, uh, it, was, it was invented. The court ultimately agreed, finding that the calculation um, that the contractor had made assumed that the government was responsible for each day of additional performance beyond its original contract period without ever considering whether there was any contractor caused delay or delay for which the government was not responsible. And if you read about the trial, it sounds like it was a bit of a circus. The, the, the contractor's damages experts essentially treated the, the certified compute, claim computation as essentially worthless. They didn't use it. They didn't even bother to understand it. Um, the contractor's claim preparation witness was inconsistent. They referred to, you know, actual future estimated calculated and planned costs all differently. And they found that the main witness who certified the claim gave false testimony. So based on that, the court found the $50 million uh, of the total claim was fraudulent in accordance with the CDA and assessed the penalty in an amount equal to that unsupported part of the claim. In addition, the court found the contractor liable under the forfeiture statute, so the contractor had to forfeit the remaining $13 million of its claim of those costs that had already been incurred. And then the cherry on top was the court assessed a $10,000 penalty for violation of the Civil False Claims Act. And this was affirmed by, by the federal circuit. So, you know, that really, that really set the tone for government counterclaims and, you know, how contractors really need to take claim preparation you know, very seriously, um, because, you know, the government will, in fact, you know, go down this road if they think the claim is, is just not meritorious. 
Interesting. Did, were Green Dreams or Day were they uh, were they suspended, debarred, or um, criminal prosecution taking place in these? So one of the problems with Green Dream is that we actually couldn't even authenticate who was on the other side. Never actually established the the actual identity of the individual who is acting as the client. Uh, in my experience, DOJ doesn't have a lot of resources in order to start pursuing small to medium dollar foreign claimants or foreign entities uh, submitting claims to the ASBCA or uh, it's largely the ASBCA in uh, DOD claims. The idea that we're just, we're going to spend our resources to go find somebody wherever they are in the world and try to bring them to justice here in the U.S. is, you know, I don't think DOJ really has those resources. So We don't, we don't employ James Bond, huh? <laughs> so I think that um, that's why these cases uh, indeed primarily show up at the ASBCA, largely through uh, overseas claimants who are, as a practical matter, really out of reach for DOJ. Daewoo, you know, it's a good question. I don't I don't think they ultimately were debarred. Um, I'm not entirely sure. I have to go back and check that. That information is not as widely publicized as uh, like federal court decisions that you can just go and read and see what happened. But right. but you're right. right to ask the question because that, of course, you know, the, the False Claims Act, sometimes the, the penalty provisions, you know, may, it may, may be not as steep in terms of dollars, but the real problem is, is what happens after that, the administrative remedies that the government has that, you know, once you're found liable under the False Claims Act, they can then, that's grounds for debarment, which is essentially you can't do business with the government for a period of up to three years. So that is the, that is the real risk for contractors in this area. Yep. Okay. Final takeaways, uh, Stephanie and Teddy. I really just say that it's uh, a good defense against an allegation of fraud begins when um, you kick off the contract and trying to maintain uh, good record keeping and um, you know, organizing your contracting file. The other thing would be if you have some sort of discussion with a contracting officer or a contracting officer's representative where you come to an agreement in some respect on some aspect of performance or billing or something, it's you need to follow that up with an email and keep that email as part of the contracting file. It's not only good record keeping practices, but it's an excellent defense to show that at best, if there was anything later, it was a misunderstanding or simply a difference in views and not in any way fraud. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just echo, I'll echo that and I'll just add in my, my final takeaway would also be, you know, make sure you understand the differences of the forum that you're in, that you're prosecuting your appeal, you know, and understand too that, you know, submitting fraudulent claims generally can have legal ramifications since the Department of Justice can always prosecute you for fraud outside of this disputes process that we're talking about. So best practices in the claim submission are imperative. By bringing the claim, you are putting yourself in the arena with the government. You're subjecting your records and your claim to scrutiny. Really consider whether you have a claim that is meritorious, whether it's worth bringing, and also to consider if your claim just is not supported, do you actually want to bring it? You don't have to bring every single claim you have. Maybe you only bring the strong ones maybe ones that you just can't find the support for, maybe you leave those behind. But those are all considerations you want to be thinking about as you embark on the claims process. If anybody, uh, for anybody from our audience wants to get hold of you, Teddy or Stephanie, how would they do so? Well, you can find us on the, the Cypherthshaw website, of course. Um, my email, I'll just give it out. It's e 
Arnold, A-R-N-O-L-D, at Cypharth.com. That's Cypharth is spelled S-E-Y-F-A-R-T-H. Uh, that's probably the best way to reach me. Thanks. And I'm at S Magnell, uh, S-M-A-G-N-E-L-L. Again, at Cypharth.com, S-E-Y-F-A-R-T-H. And um, I'm also the only Stephanie Magnell, I think, in the United States. So uh, Google <laughs> should bring me up. Well, that's great. And, you know, certainly you're both in the D.C. office of Cypherth. It's good to talk to both of you. We appreciate your time today and explaining the uh, fraud and, and claims process. Thanks so much, Todd. It was great to be here. We really appreciate it. As always, if you have topics you want us to discover in a pod, to cover in a podcast, please send me a note at Todd at FedPubSeminars.com. And until next time, stay safe, keep your distance, and read the FAR. Thank you.